At Speedway, we've always been here to get you what you need when you need it. We're committed to keeping our stores open, clean, and safe, so you can stay fueled and refreshed all summer long. We've got cold drinks for hot days and frozen drinks for even hotter ones, plus energy boosts, quick bites, and pick-me-ups. We're always on your way, and we're always here for you. So no matter what you need, when you stop by, we'll be ready. Now, any Speedy Freeze up to Mighty Size is just 99 cents. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, DC, and a political analyst for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. You can read my column in The Hill every Monday at muckrack.com front slash brad dash bannon today i wrote uh, a preview of the uh, primaries tomorrow in new york state and kentucky and the uh the quest of progressive uh democrats to win primaries in those two states my company bannon communications research polls for progressive issue groups labor unions and Democratic candidates. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about my company, uh, or if you want to make any suggestions um, or have any ideas for Deadline DC, uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Brad Bannon, all one word. Welcome to all of you who are watching on Periscope today. If you want to see as well as hear the show, you can go to Periscope.tv. Apparently, I've got my own channel, uh, Periscope.tv, front slash Brad Bannon, all one word. We have two great guests today. In the first half hour, our guest will be Congressman Ro Khanna, who represents the 17th Congressional District of Ca- in California, which is, uh, encompasses Silicon Valley. He's going to talk about pending legislation in the House that he sponsored on stimulus relief. And in the second half hour, our guest will be the national correspondent for Vox.com, Ian Milheiser, who is going to discuss the uh, recent Supreme Court cases, especially the cases, uh, recent cases that reaffirmed uh, the DACA program and also uh, a, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination against gay Americans, according to the court last week. In this segment, our guest is Congressman Roe uh, Khanna. Uh, he represents uh, Silicon Valley in California in the, in the House of Representatives. Uh, he uh, sits on the House Budget, Armed Service, and Oversight and Reform Committees. Uh, and he is the first vice chair of the Co- Congressional Progressive Caucus. He also serves as an assistant whip in the Democratic Caucus. Congressman Connor, thanks for joining us today on Deadline DC. Welcome. Brad, great to be on. I appreciate the opportunity. As you know, I 
read your columns and I appreciate that you took a chance a long time ago on a 27 year old who was running against the war and uh, yeah well uh i'm glad someone reads that anyway um anyway uh let me ask you about uh proposals you've sponsored in the house of representatives uh first uh there is a bill you sponsored i believe with congressman tim ryan of ohio uh that provides for stimulus payments uh for americans and despite the fact the president's always talking about the economy being on the upswing, uh, there are millions of Americans unemployed. I believe last week, uh, just last week, a million and a half additional Americans filed for unemployment benefits. Uh, talk about your stimulus relief proposal. Well, it's very simple. Uh, our bill would put $2,000 in the pocket of Americans so that they can pay their rent, so that they can put food on the table so that they don't lose their house. Uh, and it's for the duration of this crisis. And here's the thing, Brad, that people don't uh, understand and that drives them uh, to be so angry. They know that the Fed is fine printing money, borrowing money uh, to buy corporate bonds. They know it's fine to bail out big corporations. Uh, they know it's fine when people, big companies are getting loans. Well, why can't the American people be getting the same relief? They're the ones that need the relief, and we are failing them by not giving them the relief they need. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, I saw someone on Twitter once post a figure, and I don't know if it's accurate, but uh, they said essentially if we divided up uh, all the uh, stimulus re relief money that's been uh, appropriated so far by the number of Americans, it would come to like $36,000 uh, for every American. Uh, but basically, all most Americans have got uh, are some additional unemployment benefits and a one-time payment of twelve hundred dollars. And it does seem, after you know, spending, you know, appropriating and spending billions of dollars on stimulus relief, there's not much being done for individual Americans who are really hurting because of the economy and the virus. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't know, you know, the the accuracy of that number, but I will tell you that the uh, a disproportionate amount have gone uh, to corporations, have gone to banks. And here's the thing, the Fed chair himself is saying that it's a low interest rate, low inflation environment. So they feel like, okay, it's fine to be uh, giving this stimulus. The problem is the people excluded. And it's not just bad for ordinary Americans who are losing uh, their house, uh, who are losing their small business, uh, who are unable to pay rent. It's bad for our economy. Because as you know, Brad, we've what grows the economy is consumer spending. You put in, give money to rich corporate corporations and executives, that money is not going to go buy local grocery, support local business. So we're hurting our economy and we're hurting the middle class and working class. Uh, now, could you uh, talk about the uh, bill that you've uh, sponsored with Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, for essential workers? Sure, Brad. I you know, as you said, I represent Silicon Valley, and we always talk about a digital age. Well, it turns out 60 million Americans still actually don't do things like this. They aren't working remotely. They're the ones who are stocking the grocery stores. They're the ones who are delivering our food. They're the ones who are making sure that Amazon warehouses are still operational so people can get uh, basic hand sanitizer. They're the ones who keep the Internet open. We've learned these are actually the really vital workers in our society. They stopped working a society would shut down. If the truck drivers stopped uh, working, uh, we wouldn't have packages for, for uh, able to, to continue. So 
what we're saying, what Senator Warren and I are saying is we've got to treat these workers with basic dignity, pay them for the risk they're taking, hazard pay, make sure that they have basic PPE. You know, currently, airborne pathogens are still not regulated under the OSHA labor standards. As a business, you don't have to provide basic security and safety for workers if it's an airborne pathogen. We're saying change that. We're saying make sure that you're consulting workers about their own safety, that you're allowing workers to organize so that they can get the pay they deserve. Okay. Uh, Let me ask you about one more uh, piece of uh, legislation. the House, uh, I believe, or is uh, considering, or maybe it's already passed, uh, a ref- a bill to uh, for- reform the police and end police brutality. Uh, there seems to be the Senate is the GOP majority in the Senate is cooking up a bill, which seems to be basically nothing uh, except for some sentiments about ending police brutality without any actual steps to do so. Uh, Where is that in the House now? Is there any prospect that anything uh, will get out of of Congress this year to end police brutality? It's certainly going to get out of the House. We're going to vote on it on Thursday or Friday this week. Uh, The bill is very strong. It says that uh, it changes the standard of force, which was Lacey Clay in my bill on the Peace Act, saying force can only be used if it's a last resort. It bans chokeholds. It makes sure that we're getting rid of qualified immunity for police officers so they can still be held accountable. It changes the mens rea requirements of police officers if they act recklessly can still be prosecuted. Uh, And 231 House Democrats are co-sponsors. So I imagine it's going to pass the House pretty easily. Uh, The challenge is, as you know, the Senate's version is going to be a lot less strong. And then the president has been uh, more or less cosmetic in what he wants. Uh, so the question is, what is the final package? I imagine something is going to come through, but how strong it is remains to be seen. Okay. Uh, our guest in this half hour is Congressman Ro Connor. Uh, he is the uh, vice chair of the Progressive Caucus in the House uh, and also an assistant whip in the Democratic House Caucus. Uh, he is, uh, if you want to uh, uh if you want to reach uh, the congressman uh, with your opinions on any of the things we're talking about today, uh, you can reach him on Twitter um, at Rep uh, Ro Khanna. That's uh, R E P R O K H A N N A. And I'm sure he'll be glad to hear you uh, about how you feel about some of this pending legislation and also uh, how you're feeling about uh, what's going on in the uh, Congress or lack action in Congress. Uh, you know, I don't know what the exact figure is, but I think the House has passed something like 400 bills that haven't gone anywhere in the uh, Senate. So uh, that must be very frustrating. You, those of you, our radio audience, will be back in about uh, four minutes. Uh, for those watching on TV, we're going to uh, continue to discuss through the audio break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. In this segment, our guest is Congressman Ro Connor. Uh, who uh, represents the 17th Congressional District uh, in California. 
Uh, he is also a prominent member of the leadership in the House of Representatives. He is uh, an assistant Democratic whip. He is also the vice chair of the uh, Democrat of the uh, De- uh, Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives. Uh, he's here to talk about, uh, we talked in the first segment about uh, legislation he sponsored for stimulus relief. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the presidential race. Uh, Congressman, uh, all the polls show uh, that Joe Biden uh, has a lead over Donald Trump. Um, I think the real clear average uh, is now nine points. Uh, so he definitely has an advantage. Uh, now I am a, uh, pessimist, um, by nature. In fact, my clients sometimes refer to me as bad news Bannon, uh, because I'm incredibly cautious and, uh, you know, I almost hate it sometimes when my client has a big lead because, uh, it breeds complacency, which drives me crazy. Uh, but, uh, Joe Biden has, um, a lead over Donald Trump. Uh, now, one of the things that concerns me, well, first of all, we're of four and a half months uh, until the actual election. Uh, and as I remind my clients, uh, polls are supposed to explain public opinion, not predict it. Uh, so all sorts of things could happen. Uh, one thing that does concern me in the national polls that I see uh, is that there's a significantly higher level of enthusiasm among Trump supporters than there is among Biden supporters. Uh, so my question to you is, uh, what do you think Joe Biden can do uh, to ramp up the enthusiasm level? Right. I agree with you that if the election were tomorrow, I think Biden would win. I mean, uh, both uh, consistent leads in, in states and, and nationally. But uh, the election's not tomorrow. It's four and a half months from now. Uh, we know Trump's base is going to turn out. We know that he's been spending four years building a strong infrastructure, particularly in the battleground states. Yeah, he didn't have a great turnout on in Tulsa, but I don't think that, uh, and that's not great for his narrative, but I don't think that can us complacent about the type of turnout he's going to have uh, come November. We have to assume that his people, particularly in the battleground states, are going to turn out. So what do we need to do to turn our folks out? Uh, we need a uh, huge mobilization amongst the progressives. And, uh, you know, as you know, I co-chaired Bernie's uh, campaign, and I'm doing everything I can as a Senator Sanders to get the Bernie base out to, to support uh, the vice president in November. We need to get those voters out and young voters out. Uh, we need to get voters of color, uh, black and Latinx voters out uh, and have surrogates. So I think uh, Biden would be smart to have a lot of surrogates out there in these communities and, and also have a very aggressive digital uh, presence. OK, OK. Uh, I have seen reports uh, that uh Joe Biden has already uh, put together a transition team, which he announced last week. And, you know, I've heard reports and hints from the Biden campaign that Joe Biden realizes the enormity of the challenges he would be he would face if he is elected president. Uh, I even hear that, you know, he realizes it's not he can't afford uh, between the uh, the virus uh, and the economic depression uh, to be a stand-pat president. Uh, 
do you think Joe Biden has it in him to be a trailblazing? Pre- uh, you talked about being bold before. Uh, do you think Joe Biden has what's in, uh, has it in him to be a bold uh, progressive who uh, aggressively deals with the major problems facing the nation? I do, uh, and we've seen already that his uh, he has changed. Uh, you know, he he, he talked about uh, a return to normalcy on the campaign trail, and now he's talking about the need to complete the work of FDR and to be bold in terms of economic policies and uh, bold in meeting the moment. But I. I would say this, we've been very blessed, Brad, in our country that when we've had extraordinary challenges, extraordinary times, whether it was the Civil War, whether it was the Great Depression, uh, we've had leaders rise up to the uh, occasion and meet the challenges. That's what made American democracy uh, so extraordinary. And I don't think that's always because you have a genius like Abraham Lincoln. We've had people like Harry Truman, who uh, a great leader, but no one would have picked him as someone uh, who was going to rise to that occasion. I think Joe Biden in many ways exemplifies the best of the American character, the American spirit, and he's open to learning and changing with the times. And so I believe that the American character is resilient and willing to do big things, and Biden will reflect that and rise to the occasion. Uh, It seems to me that if Joe Biden becomes president and wins the election and Trump leaves, uh, something else I guess we've got to worry about. that he's going to have enormous challenges. Uh, it seems to me that even if the uh, COVID-19 virus calms down, we're still going to have tremendous economic challenges because I don't know what the latest unemployment figures are. I think it's something like 30-something million Americans um, are unemployed. Uh, a lot Every day I read about businesses that have shut down permanently during the uh, pandemic. And it seems to me Joe Biden's going to have enormous challenges. Uh, also, I read something today, which is rather shocking, that the temperature uh, in uh, Siberia near the Arctic Circle uh, crossed the 100 degree mark today for the first time in history. Uh, and so there is uh, global you know, climate change to worry about. Uh, what would you tell, I mean, you may get a call from the Biden Transition Committee um, about the uh, possible uh, the priorities of a Biden administration. Uh, what would you tell uh, uh, Ted Kaufman, uh, who's the chair of the Transi- Biden Transition Committee, about uh, his priorities uh, if uh, you got a call, which you probably will be at some point? Well, I would say the first priority is to rebuild the economy. Without a strong economy, we don't have the resources to tackle everything else. So build uh, the economy, put people to work, make sure people's paychecks are going up. Let's have the revenue so that we can tackle climate change, so we can tackle uh, issues of education and the disparity there, so we can tackle uh, the issues of uh, racial inequity. Let's first build uh, our, our economy. And there I would, and, and then I would say, you have a tremendous amount of talent in the Democratic Party from people like Elizabeth Warren, who's focused on that, to people like Cory Booker, who's uh, talked both about the intersection of the economy and race, to people like Kamala Harris, who's been eloquent in uh, uh, in talking about uh, immigrants' rights and people who've been uh, left behind. And so uh, figure out, or Julian Castro, figure out how you take all of this talent in the Democratic Party and marshal it uh, to, to solving the big challenges of our time. 
Okay, thank you, uh, Congressman Kanaha. Thank you very much for joining us on Deadline DC today. Uh, we hope you can come back at some point because there'll be a lot happening in the next few months. Uh, most of it good, I hope, although so far this year. Um, anyway, uh, thanks for joining us. If anybody uh, wants to uh, uh, discuss any of these issues with Congressman Connor, uh, they can reach him at Rep. Ro Connor. that's R-E-P. Uh, R-O-K-H-A-N-N-A. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC uh, with Brad Bannon after these messages uh, with our guest to discuss the recent Supreme Court cases, Ian Milhauser of Vox.com. Thank you very much, Congressman. Thanks, Brad. If you missed Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Okay, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we, in the second half hour, uh, our guest will be Ian Milheiser, uh, who writes about the Supreme Court. Uh, but before that, uh, as usual in this segment, uh, I'll give you a little bit of a piece of my mind, which hopefully will give you some peace of mind, although I don't guarantee it. The battle between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders is over. But the fight between progressives and pragmatic Democrats rages on. Support for Medicare for All and the Green New Deal define the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. The pragmatists favor the expansion, uh, uh, the, uh, excuse me, the progressives uh, favor the expansion of uh, health care and environmental protection. Uh, the pragmatists uh, basically want to move forward, but at a slower pace. Primaries in New York and Kentucky this week will be two tests of strength between the two factions competing for control of the Democratic Party. Joe Biden prevailed against Bernie Sanders in the presidential primary, uh, but uh, candidates endorsed by the Vermont senator pose major threats to mainstream Democrats in U.S. Senate primaries in Kentucky and a closely contested primary for the House in the 14th Congressional District of New York City, uh, which includes parts of the Bronx and Westchester County. Both progressive candidates are turning up the heat in polls against candidates who were once strong frontrunners. The fuel that propels uh, Bowman and Booker are strong pushes for progressive from progressive icons, hostility towards the political establishment, missteps uh, by the early leaders, and a surge in support for African American candidates in the wake of George Floyd's tragic murder. The House Democratic Price race in New York pits Congressman Elliot Engel, the chair of the House Foreign Relations Committee, against 44-year-old African-American former high school principal Jamal Bowman. There's, this is a heavyweight battle with Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in Bowman's corner, and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and former Senator Hillary Clinton with Engel. Engel appeared safe on his way to a 17th term in the House until he was caught on a House mic saying, if I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care. 
Former Speaker Tip O'Neill used to say that all politics is local, and Engels should have heeded his advice. He occupies a powerful position as the chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee, but he has left a vacuum locally, which Bowen has effectively filled. This could be a repeat of 2018, when an unknown AOC came out of the dust to beat incumbent Democratic Representative Joe Crowley, who was on the fast track become, to becoming Speaker of the United States House of Representatives. A long-term incumbent in troubled times like Engel, who plays the power game in the District of Columbia at the expense of the taking care of his own district, has a political life expenses expectancy shorter than a statue of a Confederate general. As a committee chair, he is a powerful insider, but his reputation as an absentee representative, his high-octane high uh, endorsements from Bowman, and racial turmoil created an opening that Bowman has effectively filled. The same formula for success has led to a surge in support for African-American State Representative Charles Booker against former Marine combat veteran Amy McGrath in the contest to nominate an opponent to challenge Republican Majority Leader Mitch O'Connell in November. McGrath raised a ton of early money and gained the endorsement of the Democratic Senate Senatorial Campaign Committee, but the frontrunner stumbled out of the gate when she announced her support for the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court and then quickly retracted her endorsement. In the last few weeks, Booker has gained ground on, on McGrath and gained the endorsements of the progressive power trio, Sanders, Warren, and AOC. Booker and Borman both appear to have what President George Bush once called the Big Mo. Recent polls indicate that both Bowman and Booker are now leading their contest against their Democratic opponents. The uh, wins by Bowman and Booker would have profound national implications. Democrats are less like, uh, are likely to main control the House, but victories left for progressives like Bowman will strengthen the hand of the Progressive Caucus against the pragmatic Democratic majority. The GOP is in danger of losing its majority in the Senate, and our Booker win over McGrath uh, if he goes on to beat Mitch McConnell, could move the new Democratic majority in the upper chamber to the left. There will be another battle next Tuesday between Democratic Senate pragmatists and progressives in Colorado when former Governor John Hickenlooper faces off against Andrew Romanoff uh, in the Rocky Mountain state. Primary victories in by both African-American candidates will showcase the power of blacks in the Democratic Party and might ramp up pressure on Biden to select an African-American running mate. Victories by both candidates would also strengthen the hand of the progressive Democrats as they deal with Biden for influence over his campaign, the party platform, and his administration. Finally, during a time of heightened racial tensions, uh, victories by Bowman and uh, Booker uh, would uh, strengthen the bond between progr uh, progressive white Democrats uh, and black Democrats, which is an essential element for moving the progressive cause uh, ahead in this country. Our guest in this half hour is Ian Milheiser, a senior correspondent at Vox, 
where he focuses on the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and the decline of liberal democracy in the United States. Ian is the author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. He previously clerked for Judge Eric Clay uh, of the United States Circuit Court of Appeals uh, and served as a teacher for, um, for America Corps in the Mississippi Delta. Welcome to Deadline DC, and thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. Thanks so much. Okay, let's start with uh, last week's Supreme Court decisions. Let's talk about uh, the first one, the DACA decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this was, I think, largely a blow against the Trump administration's incompetence. Um, so President Obama created the DACA program. It allows about 700,000 undocumented immigrants to remain in the country and to work here. Uh, Trump wanted to get rid of the DACA program. And in order to do that, in order to make policy changes really of any kind, federal agencies have to explain the rationale for why they're doing it. And all that the court said in uh, last week's DACA decision is that the Trump administration didn't file the appropriate paperwork. It didn't adequately explain why it was winding down DACA. So this is definitely a win for current DACA beneficiaries. It's, be it's better than a world where they lost their DACA status immediately. Um, but the legality of DACA and the question of whether Trump is just going to issue a new or his administration is just going to issue a new memo and try to get rid of DACA again um, remains open. Yeah, that's uh, very troublesome. Well, let, let me follow up on that. Uh, do you think that uh, there is time uh, in what we have, I guess, uh, basically, Trump still has five months as president, um, even if Joe Biden beats him. Uh, is five months enough time for the Trump administration to uh, take another swipe at DACA recipients? So it's certainly enough time for them to produce a new justification if they want to. I mean, I, I think there's a number of uncertain questions. So one is... The last time they tried to wind down DACA, they planned to do it fairly gradually so that, you know, there would be a six month ramp and there would be a period when current DACA beneficiaries could sign up to renew their status. And really, it, it was going to be months or even years before there ceased to be DACA beneficiaries in this country. So if the Trump administration provides a six month ramp, then conceivably by the time that um, that ramp is up, Biden could be in the White House and he could reverse um, what, what, what Trump has tried to do. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that courts are going to be watching whatever Trump does very closely. And it's possible that a court will issue an injunction blocking whatever Trump does. Now, that doesn't mean that that injunction will stay in place forever. But if the Supreme Court allows it to, it could potentially stay in place until after the election and potentially, again, until Biden is in, is in office and could reverse whatever Trump did. OK, our guest in this segment is Ian Milheiser, uh, who is a national correspondent for Vox, uh, who covers the Supreme Court and the Constitution uh, and uh, what's left of uh, liberal democracy in the United States. Uh, we're going to go to break now for our radio listeners. Uh, we'll hang on with you for those of you who are watching us on Periscope. 
so uh, we'll be back for the uh, radio listeners uh, in four minutes. Okay, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Ian Milheiser, uh, who covers a national correspondent for Vox.com, who covers the Supreme Court and the Constitution, what's left of it anyway. Um, anyway, uh, let's talk about last week. Uh, the court also issued a decision uh, that protected employment rights uh, for uh, gay Americans. So why don't you talk about that decision, Ian? Sure. So... This was, I, I mean, this was really an honesty test for Neil Gorsuch. Um, so Gorsuch is a Trump-appointed justice. Um, he has said over and over again that he believes in a philosophy called textualism, that the only thing that matters is the text of the law. And if judges don't follow the text of the law, then, like, they're doing something wrong. And the textualist arguments that the plaintiffs made in these LGBT rights cases are extraordinarily strong. So the law bans sex discrimination um, in, uh, in employment, says that any discrimination that occurs because of sex is, um, is illegal. And, you know, all that that means is that you can't treat male employees differently than you treat uh, female employees or vice versa. So... Imagine that you have two employees um, and both of them are attracted to women. The only difference is that one employee is a man and one employee is a woman. If you say that the men can be attracted to women, but that the women can't, that's just sex discrimination. You, you know, similarly, if you look at anti-trans discrimination, if you try to impose an you know, elaborate like men or people that we think are men have to dress this way and act this way, and women or people we think of women have to dress this way and act, again, that's just sex discrimination. You're, you're, you're saying that men and women are treated differently in the workplace, and that's not allowed. Um, so Gorsuch's opinion, I mean, I, I don't know if he likes the result that he reached, but I, I mean, I think it was an honest opinion that said, look, like, this is what the law says. I'm stuck with it. Um, and he he's right about that. I, I mean, it was it was a good opinion. Uh, Ian, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, your book, uh, uh, Comfort the Comfortable and Afflict the Afflicted? Sure. So, I mean, Injustices is about how the Supreme Court has, you know, for almost all of its history. Um, been a, a very conservative and often a very reactionary institution. So the court, you know, it's upheld segregation. It, it, it struck down um, child labor laws. I mean, this is the court that gave us that, that, that stood in favor of Japanese internment camps. This is the court that gave us Citizens United. It has not been a good institution no. um, in, in, in American Great Scott. Yeah. And, and so, like, you know, cases like this LGBT case that we got last week are not the norm in the Supreme Court. I think it's important to understand that that, that those cases are unusual um, in the court's history. Um, I tell you what I am most worried about in the future is that while Roberts and to a much lesser extent Gorsuch um, have shown some willingness to uh, break with their other Republican colleagues at some of these high profile cases. The one area where Roberts in particular votes as a hardline conservative is voting rights. 
And, you know, if, if, you, if you don't have voting rights, really nothing else matters. Like, like I mean, everything flows. That's what Lyndon Johnson said about the Voting Rights Act of 1964. Everything flows from this piece of legislation. Right. And, and, and so I worry that despite the fact that we're seeing some liberal victories from the Supreme Court, if ultimately they aren't going to stand in favor of voting rights, then, you know, this is all window dressing. And in the end, you know, we're not going to be able to choose our leaders and the leaders we don't choose are going to be the ones who pick the next round of Supreme Court justices. Okay, Uh, let's uh, talk about this. I gather the uh, court still uh, has uh, decisions to issue. Could you uh, preview those for our viewers and listeners? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of big cases coming. I mean, probably the biggest one that's still coming is there's a case called June Medical that really presents an existential threat to the right to an abortion. Um, So June Medical involves a law that is really identical to a law, uh, an anti-abortion law that the Supreme Court struck down a few years ago in a case called Whole Woman's Health. The only difference between June Medical and Whole Woman's Health is that in Whole Woman's Health, Justice Kennedy was still on the court. Kennedy was a little more moderate than the other Republicans on abortion issues. Um, And Kennedy's not there anymore. And his replacement is Brett Kavanaugh, who was very conservative on on abortion. So, I mean, the, the, the case is basically asking the Supreme Court to be like, all right, well, now that you've got five, you know, hardline Republican votes, let's pretend the whole woman's health never happened and let's go ahead and start allowing all these abortion restrictions. Uh, The man to watch is often the case is Roberts. I think there actually is a chance that Roberts would say, look, guys, like I don't like Roe v. Wade either, but you got to bring me a more honest case. Like, you know, you, you, you can't put me in the position of having to pretend that this case from four years ago that clearly says what it says didn't say what it says. Okay, let uh, let me ask you. Also, last week uh, the court uh, refused to hear uh, some cases uh, brought by gun rights groups uh, to essentially uh, 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 veto uh, some cities and states that have very strong gun laws. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a bunch of cases asking the court to expand the Second Amendment, and the court basically decided that it wasn't going to hear those cases. And that often doesn't mean much at all. I mean, the Supreme Court decides not to hear almost all of the cases that are brought to it. I mean, they get, you know, more than a thousand petitions, ask them to hear a case every year, and they hear maybe 60 or 70 cases. So most cases that come to the Supreme Court, they say, nah. And this could just be that. That said, I mean, there have been some members of the court, particularly Justice Thomas and and Kavanaugh, um, who have been pushing very, very hard for the court to take more Second Amendment cases and to take a very expansive view of the Second Amendment. I suspect that the reason why the court did not take any of these cases is because someone in the Republican bloc isn't sure where Roberts stands and isn't sure that if they take these cases that Roberts is going to vote with the other Republicans. Okay. Uh, Let's go back to uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Again, uh, he he, uh, broke from the uh, Republican majority on the court in the Dock and Gay Rights decisions last week. And I remember when I first heard about them, I was kind of shocked, actually, because uh, I don't follow these things very closely. Uh, but uh, 
I uh, I remembered when uh, a few years ago when he uh, basically voted to uphold Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Uh, my feeling at the time, and I'd like to know whether you think this is uh, correct or not, was that Roberts feels as chief justice that he has an obligation to protect the court. And I thought to myself, well, imagine if the, he had overruled Obamacare and 20 million Americans had been, uh, you know, fr- you know, lost their health care or that in the uh, DACA case, we all of a sudden uh, last week had to uh, deport, uh, you know, what, 800,000 uh, DACA recipients and the disruption it would cause and the damage it would do to the court service. Do you think Judge Roberts thinks about these things when he uh, votes the way he did in the Obamacare case uh, and in the DACA case and also, I guess, the gay rights case? I I think it it quite possibly could play into it. I mean, like the question of what motivates John Roberts is literally the single most important question in American law right now. And Anyone who knows the answer to the question will become the most successful Supreme Court litigator in the country because we're all trying to figure that out. Um, I mean, I what I will say about Roberts is that, you know, the other four Republican justices, like they attend a lot of Federalist Society events. You, you know, they're, they're very engaged in movement conservative conversations about what the laws should be. You know, if you read, for example, one of Gorsuch's opinions, he often cites law review articles written sometimes by very fringe right-wing law professors. So, you know, very familiar with what the scholarship coming out of uh, the Right Legal Academy is saying. And Roberts, I mean, it's not like he's not aware of these conversations, but I get the impression that Roberts is more his own person. You, you know, he's he's still very, very conservative and he still reaches conservative results most of the time. But I don't get the gather that he's playing for a team. You, you know, he makes his own independent assessment of each case and he frequently comes to the independent assessment that the conservative result is the right result. But I think that's different from playing for a team yeah. and like, you know, trying to achieve a partisan result no matter what. Okay. Uh, Ian, thanks very much for joining us today. Our guest in this half hour was Ian Milheiser, uh, who covers the Supreme Court uh, for Vox.com. That's all we have for today, folks. I want to thank my guest, Congressman Ro Khanna and uh, Ian Milheiser. Uh, I'm here every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. If the creek don't rise, the Lord is willing and Donald Trump doesn't declare martial law. And don't listen to the president. Don't drink the Kool-Aid or the Clorox. I'll see you all uh, uh, again next Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with more Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Thank you very much for listening today. Add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day. With the new iPhone SE for less than 100 bucks at Metro, you rule. It's the most affordable iPhone on the number one brand in prepaid. So whether you're studying online or FaceTiming, 
Hey, Mom. Hi, dear. The iPhone SE has all you need. Switch to Metro and get the iPhone SE for $99.99 after rebate redemption and six months of service with AutoPay. Metro by T-Mobile. Rule your day. Limit one per account slash household. Requires port and ID validation. Not valid for numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. Restrictions apply. See store for details.